0: This episode of Earth Destruction Directive is dedicated to the memory of my good friend, Mr. Sean Engel, who passed away suddenly in December. Sean was uh, not only a fellow podcaster here on the Two True Freaks Network, but he was my friend. Uh, We had uh, talked quite a bit over the years um, uh, since uh, we first corresponded back when I was writing in to uh, just one of the guys on the early days of that show, and we became friends, and, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of different things over the years and uh I really miss uh miss Sean and I miss hearing his voice and I'm glad that uh he'll live on and always be remembered through the work that he did and the you know the relationship that we had. He was a he was a great guy and uh, I miss him and I think about him all the time. Every time I see something or hear something I said, oh, this would be perfect for Sean and then, you know, it all comes back. But uh Sean, I you know, uh you're listening. And uh, keeping an eye on us from, from up there. So, God bless you, and uh, God bless your family. And, uh, you know, uh, I think you'd want us to go on, so that's what we're doing. So, uh, on with the show. Thanks, John. And now... Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. As always, I am your host, Mister Luke Jacanetti. I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show, uh, and I hope everyone enjoyed our last show, which where we took a look at issue number one of the Marvel era Godzilla comic series, uh, kind of an epic format rip from uh, the fantastic Cast, and I hope everybody enjoyed that. Um, got a good show lined up for us today before I get into the news I do want to address the hiatus. It's uh, been several months since the last episode. I missed all of uh, November, all of December and all of January and uh, you know, you know what they say when a, a podcaster, you know when a podcaster is making an excuse. It's when his lips are moving, but uh, in this case it was a combination of things. Um, uh, first off, the computer that I normally do the podcast on Um, I no longer have that computer and I've got a new one and the new setup I've got with that laptop, I've tried everything I can think of and using my current headset, I can't record on it. So that meant that I couldn't record on my lunch break, which is where I normally did recorded segments of the show. So it kind of threw my recording schedule kind of up in the air and I'm just now kind of wrapping my head around the new recording schedule I'm going to have to use in order to get the show out uh, on the basis that I want. So that was kind of a frustrating thing, and and uh, of course you had the holidays in there, and that, that always uh, kind of throws a, a damper on getting stuff done, uh, and of course Star Wars came out, and again that's kind of was like a snowball effect with uh, not only the network, but all of the other uh, kind of nerve-related stuff that I was involved with all kind of went on full Star Wars mode, so it was hard to get some Daikaiju stuff done, and uh, yes, even uh, as I said at the top of the show, the passing of my friend Sean Engel kind of put a damper on wanting to sit down and record, um, I think there's something to be said for this being somewhat therapeutic, but I'm not going to dwell on that. Like I said, Sean will want us to go on, and, and the show must go on. But we're here now, so uh hope, we got a, hope you'll enjoy today's episode. I think we got a good one lined up. Let's get into some news real quick. Uh, the big news for Daikaiju fans is that Legendary Pictures announced a few months back the Godzilla vs. Kong film, which is going to be a follow-up to both Godzilla 2 and the King Kong reboot film Skull Island. The film is set for a 2020 release. I'll say this: if nothing else, the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe formula has taught us that films can be scheduled four and five years down the road, and we're cool with it. We don't even bat an eye at it anymore. It's like, oh yeah, I can wait, you know, five years to go see to see this movie. Um, the apparently, from what they've re- revealed, the organization Monarch from the Legendary Godzilla is going to be the linking factor between the two storylines. Press release promised an ecosystem of other giant super species, both classic and new. Of uh, course, we don't. Um, legendary previously announced that Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah were going to be involved in the other Godzilla films. Maybe one of them will make an appearance as well. Uh, no real other information at this time has been made available, but obviously all Giant Monster fans are, are champing at the bit for this. I've long said that King Kong vs. Godzilla is a film that deserved a big budget remake, and it looks like Legendary is in the same boat on that. So I'm looking forward to all the films coming from this, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, between this franchise. And the revitalized Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World franchise, it's kind of a uh, and and of course, specific Rim, it's kind of a um, a boom of giant monsters, and I'm okay with that. Totally cool with that, you know. That's that's uh, I'm not gonna, gonna lose any sleep at night wondering what where I'm gonna spend my giant monster giant monster dollar going forward. So very cool right there. Speaking of the new Japanese Godzilla, film, Shin Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla Resurgence is its U.S. official title. It has finished. Fin- it has finished principal filming. It is targeted for a summer 2016 release in Japan. The effects work has begun on the film. Now, the, effe- the uh, special effects—they're expected to be a hybrid of uh, practical and CG effects, similar to the Attack on Titan tokusatsu film. Uh, the same crew that did Attack on Titan uh, did this film. We don't. We have a very vague plot synopsis about. Um, Godzilla coming back to life—it's it, kind of—it's uh, purposefully vague, and we haven't seen any footage, but they have released kind of that uh, an image of Shin Godzilla where he look—he looks like death warmed over. He's like almost like a zombie with these you know crazy eyes and these big ragged teeth. So, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this uh, how the developments go on this and whether this gets picked up for U.S. distribution. Now, more than likely, we'll be able to see it in some capacity. Um, you know, maybe in, you know, just like did it with attack on Titan. They did some screenings out in California, maybe a DVD release. Um, I'm I'm more news on this as it develops. I'm I'm keeping an eager eye on this one because the fact that we have two concurrent Godzilla, uh, series going on at the same time, that's just, that's just, that's just gravy as far as I'm concerned, considering how good the legendary Godzilla was. And the, the word of mouth on the attack on Titan film was that it was fantastic. um, as an aside, Attack on Titan is going to be covered by the, uh, uh, the those crazy freaks, Dr. Bill Robinson and Gene Hendricks over on Anime Freaks. So might uh, maybe I can weasel my way onto that with the tokusatsu film at some point, but all that's down the road. But more information on Godzilla Resurgence as it becomes available. Now, as you are hearing this, Shout Factory has released... Die Ranger on DVD. Die Ranger is a Super Sentai series from 1993, best known here in the US as the basis for the second season of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, including the White Ranger, the Thunder Zord, the White Tiger Zord, and Tor, and most of the monsters from the second half of the series. Now, that's the second Super Sentai release from Shout following Zoo Ranger, and just a couple of weeks ago they announced the release of kaku ranger kaku ranger is the series from 1994 you was used as the basis for the footage of season three of mighty morphin power rangers you've seen the kaku ranger if you've seen the alien rangers of aquatar from mighty morphin alien rangers and appearing sporadically through the remainder of the zordon era of the show uh so that one i'm very much looking forward to kaku ranger has always kind of held a, a fascination for me i really like their uniforms and all the uh you know kind of over the top ninja stuff that they do and um so definitely looking forward to that uh, but all their all those sets are worth picking up i mean something like that where we're getting officially released super sentai here in the US uh, i'm 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 definitely going to pick that up if only to say i did my part to try and keep it going so Pacific Rim: Tales from the Drift from Legendary Comics has begun. We're still in the first story arc. Uh, I believe issue four has been released. It's been pretty good so far. If I I said when Pacific Rim came out, I think in fact I think I said this on the little uh, guiding episode I did with uh, with Lomax was if there ever was a series that deserved a bunch of side stories to fill in the gaps around the movie, it's Pacific Rim, and that's exactly what we're getting here. We're getting a very interesting story about uh, a, a husband and wife. Jaeger pilot team, which has been very cool with uh, it's been a lot of fun and there's been a lot of uh stuff involving the drift, which I think is a a good use of the comics medium because some things in the drift uh, might be hard to do in film unless you go way you know really deep with the c g and stuff whereas here obviously uh the palette of the comics medium you can draw that stuff. And uh, do all sorts of stuff with the drip. So I thought that was pretty neat. So definitely check that out. I'm, I'm enjoying that series. I'm waiting on the issue 4 right now from my um, uh, DCBS box, which should be here. Uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be here today, but it's not here. So I'm a little annoyed about that. But, you know, those was a first world problem if there ever was one. And finally, the next wave of the Ultraman X figures have been announced. They include Gesera, Pigmon, uh, Griza, and a Gashapon set... And this Scotch-Upon set includes Ultraman Jonius, uh, Axe-Firing His Zandium Ray, Zetton, and Alien Bado. Uh, these are the small vinyl figures, same size as the Spark Dolls and Ultra 500 series from the last few years. Check your usual sources for these, like HLJ, AmiAmi. Ami. Um, I usually get them from HLJ. I've, I've ordered from them for years and never had any problems. Uh, hat tip to SciFiJapan.com for the information on this one. Uh, that's all the news I've got so far. If you've got a a tip about um, uh, anything Daikaiju-related, a movie, a comic, a TV show, um, new DVD release, whatever, send it in. Your email is Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll repeat that in the outro to the show. And one other item of note I do want to say. Recently, uh, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell uh, on the Two True Freaks mothership, as you were, Posted episode 500, and I just wanted to give the freaks a quick congratulations on making it to episode 500. If you look at the numbers for our network, I think I, I when I did the count last year, we had something like 1,300 individual episodes available across all the different shows. But 500 episodes of a single show, you know, and that includes all the monthly Mondays, their commentary monthly Mondays, their one-offs, uh, that those two guys have put together, those two freaks, uh, those, you know, uh, executive-level freaks that we have. It's just a really great accomplishment, and I'm glad I could uh, contribute in some small way to that. Uh, My first podcast was actually episode 10 of Star Trek Monthly Monday, where they took a look at Star Trek The Motion Picture. That came about because um, back on the old comic forums, the old comic geek-speak comic forums, um, Scott Gardner had said that uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture was his favorite Star Trek, and I agreed with him, and then he reached out to me and said, Hey, we're going to be covering this on our show. Do you want to talk about it? And uh, so it was a first step into a wider world of freakdom, and uh, I do appreciate them giving me the chance. And then, of course, um, Squares Honeywell and I, we started up, along with The Hair Metal Hero, The Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, from a discussion that started on the Two True Freaks board, and the rest, as they say, is history. Earth Destruction Directive would not exist if not uh, for the Get Off Your Ass and Make a Podcast episode. As so many other quality shows owe, to, uh, owe their existence to. This one is one of them. And I just want to say to guys, congratulations on reaching 500. And uh, I'll be here for however many more you want to record in the future. So uh, we are going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about our movie this time out, which is Veron. So we'll be right back.
1: Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday, but now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's Mightiest Podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare! I have no self-control.
0: In the mood for some real southern cooking? Then come on down to Biscuit Basket, where we always put the biscuit in the basket. We should go to Biscuit
2: Basket. That's where they put the biscuit in the basket.
0: I don't know.
2: If you loved us, you'd take us to Biscuit Basket. Biscuit Basket! Biscuit Basket! Biscuit Basket! Biscuit Basket! Biscuit Basket! All right, all right, for the love of God, we'll go to
0: Biscuit Basket! Remember, if you love your family, y'all take them to Biscuit Basket, just off State Road 23 on the Frontage Road. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Daikaiju Baran, known as Varan, or Varan the Unbelievable in the United States, was released in Japan on October 14th, 1958. This was later chopped and formed like a piece of mechanically separated meat by Crown International Pictures with a ton of U.S. footage, and released in 1962 as Varan the Unbelievable. Film was written by Ken Kurinoma and Shinichi Sekizawa, music by Akira Ifukube, effects by Eji Tsuburaya, and directed by Ishiro Honda. A rare species of butterfly is found in a mysterious valley located along the Kitakami River in Japan, and a pair of entomologists are dispatched by Professor Sugimoto to investigate. But the expedition comes to a tragic end as the two scientists are crushed by an unknown force which the locals say was due to the wrath of their mountain god, Baradagi. A follow-up expedition is organized this time made up of entomologist Kenji and reporters Horiguchi and Yuriko who is the sister of one of the men killed. Traveling to the valley they come across a small village in the middle of a ritual to appease Baradagi. The priest warns the outsiders off but they scoff at him thinking they're out in God little more than native superstition. Things come to a head when a village boy, Ken, runs out into the wilderness after his dog. Horiguchi, Kenji, and Yuriko chase after him, and chastise the villagers to do the same, which they do despite the protests of the priest. Yuriko finds the boy, and then Horiguchi, Kenji, and the villagers find them. But things get immeasurably worse when out of the river rises a towering, scaly beast with a row of spines running down his back. Varan has arrived, and he is not happy. As everyone scatters from his advance, Varan methodically heads for the village, where he levels every structure, leaving nothing standing before returning to his watery domain. As the news is sent back to Tokyo of the monster's existence, the JSDF is mobilized, with men, tanks, and artillery at the ready. A plan is made to bombard Varan thought to be a prehistoric lizard of the Varanopod family, while he is underwater in order to drive him into their assault. The military dumps toxins into the river, and Varan once more surfaces. The barrage begins, but the weapons have little effect on Varan, and a retreat is ordered. In the retreat, Yuriko ends up trapped under a tree, and while Kenji is able to save her, they end up trapped in a cave with Varan just outside a plan is quickly put into place to attempt to draw Varan away by launching flares into the sky. The plan works, and Varan follows the lights. As Kenji and Yuriko escape, Varan raises his arms, revealing fleshy membranes running from his forearms to knees like a flying squirrel, and the monster leaps up and glides away toward the sea. As the next day dawns, Varan is spotted heading towards Tokyo Bay, where he destroys a fishing ship before he runs right into a naval blockade. The ships bombard Veron with artillery, but the monster retreats underwater. In response, the military deploys minesweepers to drop charges, trying to blast Veron with explosives. But this, too, fails to discourage Veron, who continues to move towards the bay. The Defense Force has no choice but to try conventional weapons again. A scientific adviser, Dr. Fujimara, has a special explosive he has developed, but doubts that it will work as the explosive is designed to explode inside of the object and will have little effect from the outside. Desperate, the idea will be tried anyway. As night falls, Varon emerges from the bay and onto the mainland, and amidst the barrage he heads right to Haneda Airport. Kenji takes a truck filled with the explosive and leaves it on the runway, and manages to run, on foot, from the scene. Varon walks right over to the truck and it is detonated, seemingly taking the monster down. But the results are short-lived as Varan gets right back up again as he begins to demolish Haneda. Professor Sugimoto has a bolt of inspiration. He saw Varan swallow the flares by the village, so if they fill the flares with the explosive, then they can finally stop him. The flares are quickly rigged up and launched, and Varan takes a break from his carnage to swallow the flares. The first explosion rocks Varan internally, and he abandons his assault on Japan, retreating to the sea. Below the surface, the second explosion thunders forth, and it seems that the threat of Varon is gone forever. Varon is is definitely one of the lesser monsters in the Toho Pantheon, and this film is definitely one of the lesser entries. It's got kind of an unusual origin, which I'll get into in a minute, but... Watching some of the other early Showa films, which are some of my absolute favorites of the genre, and then one like this, which kind of falls flat, it's a little disappointing, but, you know, Varan is a legitimate Toho monster, and we should talk about his film. Now, the film itself is in black and white because of its origins as a TV film. Toho developed the film along with ABC TV, with the intention being uh, to have it air on TV in both the United States and Japan. But the U.S. funding fell through when ABC TV withdrew. So Toho, being Toho, took the existing footage, cropped it from the 133-to-1 TV format to the 2.35-to-1 Toho scope format, and took the usable footage that they have and expanded it out to full feature length. The film would eventually be brought over to the U.S. in severely edited form, as I said, as Baron the Unbelievable. Which I've actually not seen, but is generally considered the worst of all the localized Toho films. It's uh, never been officially released. Uh, You can find boots of it online. Um, uh, CultAction.com is a guy I've ordered from before who has a a bootleg release of it. And uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of a curiosity. I've never seen it, and I really, I kind of want to just because I have uh, the Japanese version of Iran, so I can have both versions, but I've never actively sought it out because it's supposed to be just really kind of ham-fisted and poorly done. The film is simplistic in both its story and its character. We never get to learn much about any of the characters, human or monster. They're mostly... And the human characters are mostly there to say the dialogue and move the plot along. That's uh, not really surprising, again, given the TV film origins. This is exacerbated at the 88-minute length, as the scenes which they put in to pad the running length were mostly new effects sequences. So... We, you know, there's an opportunity to expand in the film. and We still don't learn anything about the characters. Now, of course, this does have a this does mean that the film has a very good amount of monster scenes, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. But even even the, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that a kaiju film should always be a character study and we should get the high drama like we did possibly in like Gojira with Dr. Serizawa. But even looking at a fun film like Gitter at the three headed monster, we learn. About the characters in that film, just because they're given, just because they're given little character moments, and uh, that that shine through, and we learn their personalities that way. We don't really get that with Moran. The characters here are fairly anonymous. Now, like I said, this does mean we get a lot of effect sequences, and uh, that makes it worth watching right there. The musical themes from this film, which are, are uh, like I guess, an early Fukube effort, they would get reused later in films such as Rodan, Destroy All Monsters, and other areas. It's a very nice early soundtrack. I don't know that Veron has ever gotten a soundtrack released. You can find cuts of it online, but I've never seen like a perfect collection of Veron. I think it's in one of the perfect collection box sets, but I, even then I think, don't think it's the full score, but the score is very nice, especially like I said, when you, when you start to re- hear some of these and say, Oh, I remember that from Rodan or, Oh, that's the theme from when they're, they're bursting into the, uh, the key lock base and destroy all monsters or something like that. Now, the story for the film, it's a classic show one in the sense, it's the modern Japan clashing with the pre-industrialized Japan, and uh, at the same time, the clash between science and religion. The villagers' prayers are called silly and nonsense, but once Varan, you know, comes up out of the river, everyone suddenly believes. You know, they say there's no atheists in foxholes, and Chris Honeywell said there's no atheists on Skull Island, and that's the absolute truth here, too. You know, when you're, when your god is a you know, a, a uh, two hundred foot tall lizard that uh, has uh, he can fly using the membranes under his uh, arms, like a flying squirrel. You're not out there. You're not out there. You know, saying, oh, that's just goofy mythology anymore. Suddenly, it all becomes put into sharp relief in front of you, and it's very true, and you all believe it. Uh, it's, like I said, but that's that's kind of a, a t- you know, the post-war Japan era, the Showa era, that was a, a common theme, not just in pop culture, but you, that was real life. You know, it was uh, Japan was being. Uh, pushed into the industrialized world and a lot of the smaller areas the fishing villages these more remote areas they didn't want to they they wanted to keep life as they knew it because that was how they knew it. It's, you know it's uh, we, we saw this in other films we saw this even in camera versus Gauss with the idea of them bringing the the highway through this little village this little rural village and it was the uh, the modern and the traditional kind of clashing together I think you see that theme even nowadays in in Japanese pop culture. I think a, a country with the the rich cultural history that Japan has that also at the same time has this love of the modern and the now and bleeding edge type of technology and what's the next new hot thing inevitably they're going to clash you know and we see this theme all the time so it's um it's not unwelcome here. this was a very early example of it of in, in the Daikaiju uh, genre, so it's not ripping anything off, it's just not uh, It's it's not territory that's we haven't seen tread in other films as well. Varon himself, visually, he's sort of a mix of Godzilla and Anguirus. He can walk on either two legs or four, and he's got spikes on his back, like Angie, but his face and limbs are more like Godzilla. He also kind of suffers from the same problem that Anguirus had in Godzilla Raids again, in that the... It's not really a shell, but it looks like a shell on his back. It sort of flaps around as he walks. It really destroys the illusion of this being a, a living monster. It's very clearly a suit, much like we saw with, uh, with Anguirus. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm guessing that must just be the construction, that it's like a backpack piece on it, and it's not just one solid piece like Godzilla where you know the spines are, are attached on, but it's their each individual one. It's not like a big backpack thing on them. Uh, Varan would look better. The, we saw him for a little more than a cameo in Destroy All Monsters, and he does look better. The suit that they built for that was an improvement. But, um, you know, it, he looks pretty good. It's, 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 only, it's only a few times you see the flopping around. He, he generally looks like a monster, but he's got that kind of classic um, Earth monster, air quotes up to the mic design, a tooth and claw monster. He's old school, you know. He's going to get in close and mix it up. Uh, if you remember, for, uh, way back, way back in the time of Hallowed Antiquity, in a very early episode of *Earth Destruction Directive, I talked about Godzilla, Monster of Monsters for the NES. Varon is the third boss monster. Uh, he shows up on the second stage, and that's all. He, he comes in right close to you, and he just attacks with his claws. So it's same type of thing. He's a he's a melee monster. He doesn't have any ranged weapons, so he fits in well with the other Earth monsters like Angurus and Rodan and Titanosaurus and you know stuff like that. It makes sense. Uh, he's got a lot of uh, character in his face. His face is very visually interesting. He's got kind of like a dog, like a pug-nosed dog look almost. Um, it, like I said it's, it's just you don't you don't he, he doesn't come across as as much a character, like, the Ro- like Rodan, in Rodan, both the Rodans, they have a character to them, you know? They have a personality, even though, obviously, they don't speak, or and they're not intelligent per se. Varan is just so, he just doesn't reach that level. It's a good design, you could see where they could put a lot of, uh, could make that, that suit, that that design be a very personable and, and popular look but it, it just never came to fruition for him so it's disappointing because it's for an earth monster he, he fits right in like I said there's no reason he couldn't have been um, in fact he was in the original script for the film that eventually became Godzilla vs. Gigan he would. there was three earth monsters it was Godzilla and uh, Anguirus and Varan and then Varan was also one of the monsters that was supposed to be in the original version of the film that became Godzilla, Moth, or King Ghidorah: all Giant Monsters Attack. So, it was supposed to be, I want to say, Anguirus, Varan, and Baragon, as the, the guardian beasts in that. So, he's, you know, always a bridesmaid, I guess, in the case of Varan, never the bride. Now, when Varan flies, the flight effects are only in the one scene. And honestly, they came off pretty well, I thought. He glides very smoothly and very quickly. You know, it's not herky jerky, he's not wobbling back and forth. There are some fans who really dislike this. I don't think it's any more ridiculous than any other number of Daikaiju powers in the series. Um, But, you know, for what it's worth, the entire sequence was cut from the Crown US version because they thought it was too silly. It's really only that one scene. He, he, after they sound the retreat, when they attack him, and he, he comes on them, he kind of raises... They, they think that he's, they've got him kind of cornered. He raises his arms up and... Fly! Fly! Flies away. So, I like it. It's, it's a unique thing. It kind of mixes him up and makes him uh, more unique versus, you know, Anguirus and Baragon and the like, so... Now, once Varan emerges from the river, the film essentially becomes a string of effect sequences. Now, these are generally pretty nice. Uh, the flapping of the shell, notwithstanding, like I said. After a while, they get a little repetitive because there are no human scenes to break them up. Even, um, you know, films that are known for having a lot of monster stuff in them. Another good example, like I said, Gator the three-headed monster. Uh, they have human scenes in between them to break it up. So it's not just monster scene, monster scene, monster scene, monster scene. It gets a little monotonous. It's, it's fun to watch, and they're well-made, but there's not a lot of memorable bits because it's just, and they launch another attack, and they drop more bombs, and they drop more depth charges, and then it's Varon underwater, the charges come down at him, and then it's Varon hiding from the charges on the water, and some dropping more charges, and then it's it's it just becomes kind of a like a drumbeat of of effect sequences, and there's nothing really to kind of act uh, even whether as comic relief or to give you that second story, that human story in it, you know. The scale of the film it's very small you know, Varan trashes the village and then Haneda Airport, and really that's it, you know, all of the, uh, the, the rest of these scenes like I said, is him in the water, so it's in the effects tank, so there's not a lot of uh, you know, city smashing going on per se you know, it, it lacks the broad amount of miniature carnage seen in other films of this era um, Gojira, Godzilla Raids again, Rodan is the big one, there's a lot, there's that, you know, when they go to town in the uh, at the end of the second act of Rodan they're not fooling around. There's a lot of stuff that gets taken out. I mean, and those effects are great. They get used as stock footage later on in the series. Whereas here, it's, it's very low-key in that sense. I'm almost reminded kind of tangentially of Gamma vs. Zigra, where the one, the, there's, there's exactly one building destroyed in the entire film. You know, that, that's the kind of financial woes that Dai was in at that point. But, again, it, it is a budgetary thing. This was designed as a TV film, and Toa was trying just to salvage it on the cheap and make it into a feature. So, you know, you do what you can with what you got. That's that's uh, the, the law of genre filmmaking, isn't it? It's just odd, because even even throwing in the non-monster movies, like the Mysterians, the scale of those films was much bigger than this. This feels like a, a small story. And you could do a small, intimate monster story, but there's not enough personality from the humans to make us really care about the intimacy so one thing i did notice while watching this is that there's some really nice composite shots with the models and the live action there's one of a soldier getting out of a missile truck and um, you see the 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 miniatures behind him and then he's in that the, the the missile truck in the foreground and we get the background it's really well put together even on the dvd it looks really sharp a lot of times these composite shots on the DVD because uh, it brings everything into such clarity that you can really see the difference in quality of each plate of film that's used in the composite. But they really, they really look very nice here. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, I think the black and white helps to smooth it out. If this was in color, it might not look as well. I keep referring to the Gamera theories, but the first Gamera does this as well. It's made in black and white kind of to lower the complexity a little bit at having to worry about color and matching color so much and dealing with the the uh, inherent complexities of shooting in color. So this helps it. It does give it kind of a, a nice look. It doesn't have the noirish uh, sort of feel like Gojira, but it does have the, uh, you know, it does have a kind of classic feel like Godzilla Raids Again, where it's being shot in black and white. Now overall, it's a decent little movie, but not worth going to great lengths to track it down. It's more of a curio, a film that was lost and forgotten about for a long time. Varan is a pretty good monster, but there's a reason why he's not one of the upper crust of the Toho uh, monsters. Just not. It's fun, but not memorable. You know, I mean, I, I've watched it and I'm, I'm really racking my brain to think of memorable scenes that aren't you know, Varan flying or Varan hiding in the water from the depth charges or attacking the airport. I mean, those are really it that stand out. Um, now, uh, if you can find the DVD at a good price, pick it up, but don't go nuts for it. The Tokyo Shock, which was the uh, like Japanese science fiction imprint from Media Blasters. Their DVD is excellent, but it can get pricey as it, added, it is at a print, similar to the Mysterians. Uh, the U.S. version is available as a print-on-demand service from Synergy Archive series. I've never heard of that. I just kind of came across it while I was uh, doing my research. I found it on Amazon. I don't know if that's legit or not, to be completely honest with you. Um, I would If you can find it, get the Tokyo Shock DVD. That's the one I have. Uh, it's got a lot of great the special features on it. It's got a whole... Uh, it actually has a reconstruction of what the television version would have looked like, which is pretty neat. It's got um, you know, the, the interviews and trailers and all that. It's also got a... a it's a sequence from like a Japanese TV show where a guy was... Like a reality show where the guy was learning to be a Daikaiju effects guy, and they build Varon, and they show like how they constructed the suit. And one of the things I'll always remember is that it's little like flexible plastic tubing that they make his horns out of so they could light them up so that they would show up and you'd see them as bright as they are in the black and white. It's actually a really neat special feature. So I guess if you can find that Tokyo shock DVD, pick it up, but don't go crazy nuts for it. You know, I, I see that just selling for, you know, north of $50 on eBay. It's like, it's not really worth that. If you can get it. You know, 25, twenty five, twenty twenty five bucks, that's probably a pretty good price, even if that's a bit pricey, to be honest. But if you can find it at a price that's reasonable for you, then by all means, pick it up. I think it's a, a worthy uh, addition to a Daikaiju fan's library, if not an essential um, uh, uh, part of the collection. So, Now, my brother Jason actually sent in some pre feedback for this episode, both for Varon as well as Marvel Godzilla number two. And here's his note about Varon. He says, um, Synergy Archive series was re- DVD was released in 2011. That is a DVD-R and is made on demand when ordered. Okay, so I guess it is. I guess it is legitimate. Uh, it didn't look too legit when I saw it on on uh, Amazon, but if my brother says it is, I'm I'm willing to take his word on it. A new release came out in July of 2015, but I think that it may be the exact same disc as the previous release, just maybe not DVD-R format. The one thing that is for sure is that it has never received. At least not in America, the loving cleanup and transfer to Blu-ray and high quality DVD release that Shout Factory did for the Gamera movies and Sony with the Godzilla films. Hopefully this will be remedied soon. As of this writing, Varon is streaming on Amazon video and is free to stream for all Prime members. I did not know that about about the Prime members, so that's a that's a good point. Uh thank you, Jay. A lot a lot of I know a lot of folks are getting Amazon Prime, and frankly, it's a good deal. Just that that's my personal opinion. That's not a uh I have no affiliation or connection with Amazon, but I, just looking at it, if you buy a lot of stuff from Amazon, it's a good deal. Um, I, I, I would say that the the the, uh, the Tokyo Shock DVD is is probably the best we're ever going to get for Veron, but like I said, unfortunately, it is out of print, so it's kind of a uh, uh, on the one hand and then the other. So if if you can find it at a good price, you know it, it's it's a good deal, but it, not worth the ex- kind of exorbitant prices you might see for it online sometimes. So um we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. here on earth destruction directive now we're going to take a look at marvel comics group godzilla number two godzilla number two was cover dated september 1977 and was released on or about may 31st 1977 Uh, this information per mike's amazing world of comics at dcindexes.com our writer is doug mensch our penciler herb trimpey Inker is frank giacoya letterer john costanza colorist Janice Cohen, editor Archie Goodwin, and the title is Thunder in the Darkness. Godzilla, still injured and angry from his encounter with S.H.I.E.L.D. in Alaska, comes ashore at Elliott Bay in Seattle, Washington, and immediately lays waste to everything in his path. Agent Gabe Jones and his green team are pursuing and observing Godzilla, but do not engage. Back on the helicarrier, the green team commander, Dum-Dum Duggan, is briefed on Godzilla's background by Dr. Takaguchi, who tells the Shield Man about Godzilla's rampages in Japan, as well as the other monsters he has fought since he first appeared. Tamara adds that Godzilla is beyond good and evil, more of an elemental force who cannot be judged by man, which prompts an outburst from Takaguchi's grandson, Robert, who rages that Godzilla has saved the Earth many times, and that SHIELD cannot be allowed to kill him. The doctor silences the boy and Duggan quickly shifts back to tactical mode, reviewing the plans Takaguchi and Tamara have developed. Just then, Jones and his team arrive at the helicarrier and report that Seattle is in grave danger. As Godzilla continues his path of destruction, Dum-Dum asks Jones about the plan to cut off the power in the city so they can lure the creature away, to which Jones replies that the city council is still voting on it. Enraged, Duggan orders Jones to turn the lights out by any means necessary. At the Space Needle, a luxurious dinner is turned into a violent panic as Godzilla threatens to topple the structure. The green team attacks, but does little more than further irritate the monster. Duggan orders Jones to take out the power station, which Jones does by blowing it up with missiles. The lights doused and no doubt countless panicked civilians trampling each other in the darkness, Duggan enacts his plan as his green team line up and take turns lighting super bright beacons luring Godzilla out of the city, across Puget Sound, and toward the Olympia Mountains. The plan works, and Godzilla chases the light until he reaches the palisades overlooking the Pacific. There, Duggan brings out the final piece of the plan, two blockbuster weapons, which hurl massive inertia blocks at Godzilla, walloping him with the dense, Heavy projectiles until he tumbles off the palisades and into the ocean below. Having had enough of this crap for now, Godzilla wades back out to sea. In the Helicarrier, Jones confides in Duggan that even though they helped save most of the city, that after battering and injured and confused Godzilla, he does not feel like much of a hero. And Robert Takaguchi muses to himself that the Americans have much to learn about the monster, and that he believes that he himself is Godzilla's only hope. Next issue... Godzilla reaches the shores of San Francisco, and waiting for him are the champions. This is a fun issue. I covered this issue a long time ago on Back to the Bins, and I was eager to revisit it. This was actually the first issue of the series that I ever owned, and it is a, oh, it's a fun, fun story. So let's get right into it. First up is our cover, as uh, we see Godzilla uh, toppling and taking a big bite out of the Space Needle at night with the spotlights shining this harsh yellow light on them as everybody runs away in panic. The hard, the yellow spotlights, they bring a nice contrast to what's an overall darkly colored cover. I mean, it's at night there's a lot of reds and purples and, uh, you know, a lot of warm, dark colors. So the, the, the harsh yellows, which eliminate all light behind them, they look almost like laser beams, but they're clearly spotlights, uh, really bring a nice contrast. The humans at the bottom used for scale, we saw those on many Shogun Warrior covers, uh, that Trimpy uh did showing the scale of everything, and G still has the really empty doll's eyes, which I really like. He really looks like a monster on this cover, so I think Trimpy does a good job on the cover it's a very nice piece, page one uh it's kind of a come in atcha perspective as we are looking up at the big G as he is stepping down on um uh, On the the dock at Seattle, and you see everybody running kind of towards the foreground as uh, we're looking up, up, up at Godzilla. His foot is gigantic because it's right in the foreground, but he's more in the background. Very nice perspective looking up at our monster. Turning over now to page 2, panels 2 through 4. No quarter given in this. There's very immediate in the destruction as Godzilla lays waste to the harbor. It reminds me of the shoreline defense scene in Godzilla 1984, only this is not a military response. These are civilians that he's just, he, you know, unloads on with fire and then just wades right through it. The middle panel especially just shows all the ships toppled over and on fire, all the dock buildings with, uh, you know, people fleeing from them and uh, a truck kicking up smoke as it's running away. It's, everything is just on fire and burning in the darkness. It's, uh, you know, pretty intense considering it's just a little three-panel sequence on the second page. Uh, it picks up the plot line from number one with Godzilla's injury at the hands of laser cannon. I thought that was good because one of the nitpicks I had about the first issue that they kind of downplayed the effects of the laser cannon, but clearly Mensch was going to use it going forward. So that, that kind of retroactively makes up for that nitpick. Pages three through seven as Duggan and, uh, our characters, Dr. Takaguchi and Tamara and Robert Takaguchi have their kind of debriefing session on the Helicarrier. We're still developing the characters. The focus has remained on the monster for the first two issues, which is okay. I mean, he's the title star of the, of the book, and these are relatively new characters that Mench is, you know, working on and having them talk to an established guy like Dum-Dum-Duggan gives them a chance to kind of talk about where they come from and what their opinions are so we learn more about them. So that's okay. I'm happy with that. Now, right in the middle of this, on page 6, we get to see some of Godzilla's other fights. And man, I would love to see these stories. There's two very strange and very wonderful Trimpy-style monsters on this page. One of them looks like some kind of like a, a worm with uh, four arms and two legs and like eyes on uh, long stalks on his head. We see Godzilla grappling with him and taking a bite out of him. Now this one is the one I want to see. It looks like a blue griffin, except he's only got... It looks like he's got uh, two legs, two wings, and then a tail with like a spiked ball, like a morning star in the end of it. And I'm a sucker for griffins, so I definitely would like to see this. Ironically, one of the unproduced American Godzilla films did feature him fighting a monster called the griffin. So uh, perhaps this, that, maybe in my mind, this will be thus the griffin from now on. So I would, I would very much have liked to have seen these stories. And um, it really kind of, you know, it's disappointing that we didn't. On page seven, panel one, uh, Dr. Takaguchi holds up a, um, a scientific paper talking about Godzilla, and the picture that Godzilla there has teeth like the shark on the Jaws poster. I mean, they look like he's got like carrots sticking out of his mouth here. It's like, uh, yikes! Oh my gosh! I don't really remember Goji ever having teeth like that, but you know, I suppose it's a, it's a different universe. We just got to take things as we go, right? Turning over now to Page 11, panel 1, uh, Trimpy once again channeling Jack Kirby with the shield work here as Gabe Jones and his green team come in for a landing. Just the overall, the the layout is very Kirby in the page design. With uh, We see Duggan in the immediate foreground, and then in the midground is Jones getting out of his little bubble jet. And then behind them we see not only the shield guy, the shield maintenance tech coming up to work on it, we see the flight crew bringing in the other of these bubble jets. And then they all just kind of, kind of uh, stretch into the background. So I looked at this and if you had told me this was a panel from a Jack Kirby shield book, I wouldn't have like taken an isolation. I probably would have accepted it. It's very Kirby and which appropriate is appropriate for doing the shield super spy stuff that, you know, Trimpy's kind of look as has a layout of similar and brings to mind Jack Kirby. So I appreciated that, especially being the Kirby fan that I am over on page 14. Uh, panel two, as the, uh, the helicopters are observing Godzilla and, uh, just kind of keeping an eye on him. He turns around and just unloads with a torrent of atomic breath on one chopper that gets too close. And, uh, it's the immediacy again, like we saw in the dock. You can tell that Godzilla is pissed off because he, he just, he just looks angry. He's got, I said, these black eyes with these red, um, you know, red irises in the middle of them, and then he just wheels around and unloads on this helicopter. This is not a um, normal—you don't want to mess with, uh, you know, a 400-foot-tall fire-breathing lizard, but this one especially—he does not look happy. And I, you know, I, I and mean, I don't feel bad for the guys that that had to fly their buzzed their chopper so close to him and ended up getting blasted. So, further on down that page, on panel five, uh, Duggan is—he's—he's he's looking right at us, the reader. And he's got his left hand crossed in front of him, and with his right hand he's grabbing his left wrist. It looks like he's setting up a rocket punch attack, or maybe one of Maxima's attacks from uh, King of Fighters two thousand. Uh it's 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 just a silly thing. It doesn't really I doubt he's having a rocket punch, but then again, what we've learned about Duggan lately, maybe he is have a rocket punch built in there. Maybe that'll come up at Howling Commando's a shield. I'd be I'd be on board with that. Now page fifteen, they um The, the Godzilla is in Seattle. Okay. He's landed. He's making his way through it. Why have they waited until now to evacuate the city? I, I could say something about the city planners of Seattle and, and their, you know, the city council's really poor decisions, but Mensch kind of beats me to it with this whole thing about them debating whether or not to turn off the power after it's been shown that, you know, a blackout is an important thing so they can use the bright lights on Godzilla. But I mean, people are sitting down eating dinner. I mean, the there I mean, you see the shot of the space you needle. Know, there's smoke rising in the distance from Godzilla's carnage, and the Mater D comes and says the authorities have requested to
1: evacuate
0: the restaurant. And it's like, why have we why have we waited this long to do it? It's like, have these people ever seen a Godzilla movie? No, yeah, apparently not. Now the next page, page sixteen. This is just a great page as Godzilla goes to attack the space needle and then gets attacked by the little uh, rocket sled by dum-dum-duggan. It's, uh, it's got a wonderful sense of action and panic. You know, the first panel we see Godzilla just looking right in and all the uh, patrons fleeing. One guy's glasses are falling off. One woman's just throwing her hands up in shock. And uh, then the next panel is just people overturning tables, silverware flying everywhere. We see a torrent of fire bursting in through the window, so that's always, uh, you know, that that'll that'll make you move. You'll forget about your hat check if you do that. Uh, just just a really nice page. Now, unfortunately, the color copy I have is a little muddy in the printing. So, like the last panel with Godzilla kind of uh, roaring and trying to grab at Duggan and the rocket sled, it looks kind of, kind of... The coloring's not great. It's a little off. The pink from the background kind of runs into Godzilla. His teeth run into the red maw. It's not really well done. But in the essential... Oh, in black and white, this page looks fantastic. So I have no doubt that uh, that, that Trimpy did a good job with Giacoya and Tuska uh, as the anchors, and that uh, uh, Jan Cohen did the best that they could. And it was the printing that just didn't uh, didn't uh, you know live up to the expectations because in the black and white, it is a great page. This is probably my favorite page in the whole book, just from an art standpoint. Now, page seventeen, Duggan tells. Gabe Jones to take out the, you know, take out the power station, take it out. And so Jones blows it up. I mean, blowing up a power plant is not a decision without repercussions. Couldn't have Jones have gone in and demanded they do a safe shutdown or, you know, they could have taken out a a substation or, or something like that. Blowing up a power plant. I mean, you're talking years and years and Thousands and thousands and thousands of man hours going into—never mind the capital, the hundreds of millions of dollars going in to producing this plant—and he blows it up. Now, understandably, this emergency situation—an emergencies Sometimes you do what you got to do, but you know that the—I unfortunately, I don't think this ever gets revisited. You know, it's like because uh, later on in the epi- in the issue, the lights magically come back on. This plant will take years to rebuild. Is S.H.I.E.L.D. on the dime for that now? For destroying part of Seattle's power grid? Or the state of Washington, most likely, not just Seattle? What if Washington was selling some of this power to California or Oregon? You know, are, are they gonna be footing the bill? Is Tony Stark gonna have to build a new coal fire plant out here because Gabe Jones blew it up instead of shutting it down? I mean, I know this is a silly nitpick in a comic book about a giant monster trying to eat the space needle, but this, this bugged the heck out of me when I saw it. It might, it, you know, it's, it's gotta be just me, but seriously, blowing up a power plant and then the lights come back on, that's not how that works. Turning over now to page 22, panel 4, as, uh, the, they, they start the plan of turning, now that Gabe Jones has blown up the power plant, of using the lights on the rocket sleds to lure Godzilla out. Um, the situation has has changed. Godzilla looks really confused. So even there, just, it's just a little shot from the side, and Godzilla's in the extreme foreground, but Trimpy shows us uh, a good bit of uh, the intellect here, as Godzilla's, he's very, he's very confused. Ironically, he's attracted to the light, not unlike in Varan, Or alternately, Godzilla raids again, so this is a good use of uh, kind of established monster, um, you know, philosophy of attracting him to a bright light to lure him where you want him to go. On the next page, page 23, panels 1 and 4, Trimpy shows us good scale once again. And uh, you know, really shows Godzilla versus the size of Puget Sound or against the rocket sleds and it's um in the Olympia Mountains in the in the distance. It shows us how big this guy really is, you know, he, he relative to a Marvel book at this time, this is the biggest thing you're gonna see. So I really liked that. I also really liked uh Mensch using uh specifically Puget Sound in the surrounding area. It adds a lot of legitimacy to this. It's not just, you know, the city. It really is Seattle and the surrounding areas of Seattle, Washington. So it kind of gives it an air of legitimacy here uh, that uh, obviously the research was done to show not just the geographic layout of Seattle as a city, but what's around it. I mean, Puget Sound is an important part of Seattle. And so incorporating it into the story, I I thought that was a really nice job by Doug Mitch. Turning over then to page 26, the first panel uh, as he stands atop the Palisades, we look up at Godzilla in another perspective shot. He's got a bit of a gut here just from the angle, but still a really cool panel here as he uh, he roars his defiance at the Pacific Ocean. And uh, the captions are, are pretty nice. It says, All the way to the sheer Palisades, but it is here at the sixth beacon that the creature halts, bellowing his rage and confusion into the darkness. It's uh you know it's 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 a little melodramatic, but dang it if I don't love it. The melodrama is earned there and Mench does a good job of delivering on it, and uh Trimpy does not let him down with the, the artwork again, the pose from Godzilla, the personality. Uh, just really a very nice panel. Now over on page thirty they deploy the blockbusters to take out Godzilla, and these really look like they hurt. These inertia blocks. They're these big bricks. I mean, uh, they look to be about half the size of Godzilla's head, and they're just pounding them with these things. Now, Mench tells us that it takes 16 shots to push Godzilla over the edge. My question, why did he not just crush them after one shot? Because we don't get any information about their rate of fire. Uh, All we ever see at most is there's there's two of these blockbusters, and there's uh, we see two blocks at any one time in the air. So it seems to me like they probably have a fairly long reload rate, but looking at them again, you know, you see there's, they've got some more um, of these big uh, inertia blocks in the loaded up. So maybe they can fire fairly rapidly and it takes 16 of these. So eight shots from each to pound Godzilla enough to finally push them off the palisades. That's putting over Godzilla as a tough customer because I mean, it's a very simple kind of blocky design, but like I said, these weapons look like they hurt and one, you know, uh, especially they start shooting him in the back of the neck to start with. So I think this is a good job by uh, Mench coming up with a creative weapon and a neat way for them to push uh, push Godzilla around, but also taking the time to put over Godzilla's strength and endurance as it takes, it's not just a single shot kill, he is pounded on by these things before they make an impact on him. Now page uh, 31, panels 5 and 6, as Gabe Jones comes back, and uh says to Dum Dum that uh somehow after seeing that thing blinded, confused like that, what we did to it, well I guess I just don't feel like one of the good guys of this thing. Kind of a classic Marvel ending there, the the hero that he wins but at what cost victory, or has he really done the right thing? So uh if you're gonna do Marvel Godzilla, do Marvel Godzilla and I think this ending is a very good example of doing that. As I said, this was the first issue of the series I had read. It was enough to sell me on the series. It's fun and action-packed. Godzilla clearly is the star of the book here. Everyone else, merely a guest star. I don't care if they're human or, uh, you know, machine. But uh, Godzilla's the, uh he's the star attraction as he deserves to be. We get some really creative use of S.H.I.E.L.D. to fight him. Uh, we get to draw on the continuity of the history to lure him away from the city. And it's got a novel setting with Seattle, which Mensch makes a lot out of. I had a blast reading this. I'm eager to read the next one. It's hard. I try to read them as I'm just, as I'm doing show prep, but it's really hard, especially when I've got the essential out, not to just, okay, I can just read one, you know, <laughs> cause I'll then, then I'll be so ahead when I'm trying to get around to doing the actual uh notes for the show that I don't know of, of a, you know, it's, it's going to be an odd, odd choice. So I, I did Shogun Warriors that way and it seemed to work out. So I plan to do Godzilla that way as well. But yeah, really, really fun. Let, let's, uh, Let's flip through the book and see if we got any good ads. We get the hodgepodge ad here: uh, join the Youth Opportunity Sales Club to earn super prizes. Um, we get the uh, Joe Weeder Bodybuilder Kit. I think that's a picture of Dr. Bill Robinson there using that. Oh no, I'm I'm sorry. That's uh, uh, France France Franco Colombo, Mr. Universe winner, and um, and not Dr. Bill. That'd be a that'd be good Photoshop. I have to think about that. Uh, the new Spidey utility belt has be just like Spidey and wear a utility belt. Although these beach towels are pretty cool. There's the Captain America beach towel has the cover to uh, uh, Captain America 183 by Jack Kirby with the Mad Bomb. And I love the Mad Bomb. Uh, we got the uh, Daisy uh, BB gun. Um, uh, the sport a boy grows up with. Uh, I've It's funny, I never had a BB gun, but when I was in high school, I had a friend that did, so I have fired him. And, uh, it was pretty fun. And, uh, that, uh, you know. Uh, we got the, uh, half-page house ad for the human fly! He's here! America's real-life superhero always say, The human fly! Come on! I stayed up all last night dying in my underwear. And, uh, we get the subscription page with, uh, Captain America and Spider-Man and Howard the Duck. We get a full-page house ad for Star-Lord is back! Because you demanded it. another Marvel black-and-white masterwork Coming your way in Marvel Preview number 11. And I want to say the fellas over on Back to the Bins covered this during their Guardians of the Galaxy tie-in. I want to say they did Marvel Premiere number 11. I I might be wrong on that, but I want to say they did that. So, uh, cool Star-Lord ad there. Uh, Let's see, more HodgePodge, Movie Projector. These are things we've seen before. Marvel Bullpen Bulletins. Um, They talk about... This one is actually pretty neat because they talk about the... uh, that they're doing the, uh, the, the, uh, the adaptation, the comic adaption of The Island of Dr. Moreau. And then they say that, uh, soon to follow will be our version of The Deep, the film of Jaws author Peter Benchley, a novel of sharks, deep sea treasure, and a giant eel. And then they talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind and 2001, uh, a Space Odyssey. And, uh, they, they tease, uh, Ian Fleming, which I'm assuming is, uh, I'm not sure which one they're talking about here, because they didn't do one until For Your Eyes Only, which was, um, uh, a couple of years, well, it was after this, wasn't it? Well, now let me think, this is 77, yeah, because, uh, yeah, 81 is, uh, For Your Eyes Only, so I'm not sure what they're talking about there, but The Deep was, uh, the reason why this item jumped out at me was not the James Bond stuff. It was more The Deep because I actually have that. I picked up that uh, Marvel uh, movie special of The Deep a few uh, months back for a buck at, uh, at Mr. K's at the used bookstore nearby. It's actually really good. I I don't think I've ever seen The Deep. And then I found out there was like a super long version of it. I was like, oh, I got to get that. I love super long TV versions of movies. So uh, I, I definitely, uh, that, that just caught my eye because it's right in the middle of the page. You see The Deep standing out. So that was fun. Uh, let's see anything uh and that's about it the the back cover however, the back cover is an angry. Thunderbolt of Terror explodes out of the ocean's depths. Orca, the killer whale, destroys sharks, ships, and men. He rules the ocean. He terrifies the earth. He is without mercy and without equal. Orca, the most powerful, the most fantastic animal in all the world. Dino De Laurentiis presents Orca, starring Richard Harris and Charlotte Rambling, opening in July at a theater near you. Ah, Orca the killer whale. Now, uh, what I would really like is uh, for Scott Gardner to come online right now and start talking about Logan's Run. Because back in the day, the Freaks did an awesome Logan's Run episode, and I hijacked the thread to talk about Orca on the old bulletin board. And I I think Scott has never quite forgiven me for that. So uh, I I didn't mean anything by it. I've just never seen Logan's Run, and I have seen Orca. So uh, it's all I took by it. Now, Orca, I mean, to quote my friend Adam, this whale should be commanding armies. I'm just going to leave it at that, Um, you know. Knocking down houses, fouling people, uh, you know, uh, to the Arctic Circle and all this stuff. Because if you, if anyone who's watched Orca knows, Orcas have bigger brains than humans. So I'll leave it at that. All right, now I did mention earlier that my brother Jason sent in some pre-feedback uh, for this episode. And here's what he had to say about this issue. He says, I know you don't read ahead, so I will limit this to just a couple of items that we already know by issue number two. Number one, not having read anything else with Dum Dum Duggan. Every time he gets excited to yells, his cigar flies out of his mouth. That seems pretty dangerous as this could burn himself or others. Again, good point. We always want to think safety first. You know, uh, safety culture is very important. The company I work at, that's like our big motto. Um, and, and that's a shoot, by the way. I'm willing to bet my brother has never read another comic with Dum Dum Duggan in it because of just what I know of his comic reading tastes. Um, you know, Dum Dum Duggan didn't appear in any EC horror comics, for example. And, uh, you know, nor in Dark Horse, Predator, and uh, Terminator comics. So that's probably why I didn't, uh, didn't get that. But that's a good point. It does, it, they do show that a lot. His cigar is always like kind of like hanging off him. Uh, you know, Ben Grimm used to get the same thing back when he was allowed to smoke in the pages of Fantastic Four and Marvel 2 and 1. And number two, did you notice that Godzilla, especially in issue two, is drawn to look like a sumo wrestler? Look at his overall body shape, the muscular legs and arms, his stance and large stomach that is fat but not ripped. If you were to change out Godzilla's head for a sumo wrestler, it would not look at a place. That's what I have for now. Talk to you later. Keep him stomping. Um, Jay, first off, thank you very much for the pre-feedback. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 you're, I mean, as soon as I read when you said that, I took a look at some of the, uh, some of the pages. And yeah, I can really see that he's definitely got a sumo sort of look, which makes sense. I mean, when you think of a real life Japanese giant, it's a sumo wrestler, right? Um, so, uh, I can definitely see that. Maybe Trimpy was was, uh, doing that on purpose. Maybe it was a little, uh, you know, subconscious thing for him. But it does, uh, I mean, Godzilla's depiction is definitely not a classic Godzilla in, you know, the way of like uh, um, Art Adams, you know, uh, when he did uh, the Godzilla Color Special and stuff like that and his Dark Horse work. But to me, it's more like if Godzilla was, you know, a Marvel Atlas-era monster. He definitely, he's recognizable as Godzilla, but he's also his own thing. Um, here on Two Two Freaks, we might say this is kind of the way that, say, a lot of the characters in Marvel Star Wars were portrayed, where they weren't necessarily, you know, really super, um, you know, uh, like, like uh, photo reference to their actors, but they were clearly the characters. I think it's kind of the same thing with Godzilla. Um, which is kind of odd because the Shoguns, I thought, were very strongly referenced to their toys the way that they were drawn, whereas Godzilla seems a little more freeform. But not not a bad depiction. I'm, a Trimpy's depiction of Godzilla is really growing on me. Like I said, Jay, thank you very much for the feedback. All right, so that uh, about wraps up coverage of Godzilla number two. We're going to take a quick break here, and uh, we'll come back to do the uh, listener feedback and to close out the show right here on Earth Destruction Directive.
3: Starting in December 2015,
2: a new epic mega-series.
3: Trentus Magnus Punches Reality proudly presents Batman v Superman,
2: a 13-part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. John M. Wilson
3: and Magnus
2: shine a spotlight on a crapload of Batman comics
3: and a crapload of Superman comics,
2: all as preparation for the theatrical release of...
3: Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice And once that's all over
2: We'll take a five hour long look Back at 2013's Man of Steel
3: Finally We will come together again To discuss our thoughts on the Batman v Superman film
2: So join Magnus And John as they recount the adventures of Batman and Superman in comics.
3: All is preparation for Batman and Superman's first adventure
2: in live-action feature film.
3: The adventure begins in December 2015. Batman v Superman.
2: Only at twotruefreaks.com. Batman vs. Superman. A thirteen part miniseries from Trentus Magnus punches reality.
3: Only at twotruefreaks dot com.
0: And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for listener feedback as I hold in my hands your listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can reach me by emailing me at earthdestructiondirective.com. Or you can send me a message on Facebook at uh, first name Earth Destruction, last name directive. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at the handle at LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And all this information is also in the outro to the show, so let's get right into it. Now, up first, I have to make an apology. This bit of feedback came in through Facebook from my friend Jack Dower, and I had this, and I had it ready to go, and I completely lost it and didn't realize that I didn't actually say this on the show. So, Jack, I'm really sorry for forgetting about this piece of feedback that you sent me, but I'm going to read it now, and this is is your feedback uh, that you sent to me through Facebook. You say, Commander Jack and Eddie... I think that King Kong vs. Godzilla is the greatest monster fight of all time. There are great monster fights throughout the Godzilla series. Also, the many clashes between the universal monsters are fun. This one, though, is just amazing. Right from the beginning of it, who thinks of getting a monster drunk and then flying to the top of a out on helium balloons, dropping them at his adversaries? What a way to start a bar fight. Godzilla's claymation karate kick had me cheering as a kid, and I still smile every time I see it. Kong shoving a tree in Godzilla's mouth just to have it fire-breathed away? How do you not love that? King Kong hurling Godzilla by his tail is one of my favorite scenes in movie history. Right up there when Penguin sticking Batman the eye with his nose during the final fight in the Batman 66 movie. This is my favorite Godzilla design. I could go on forever, so I will stop now. Uh, this, this warms the cockles of my cold... Dead black heart, Jack. I loved reading this. Your your enthusiasm for it, because I share a lot of these enthusiasms. King Kong vs. Godzilla was not one that I watched a lot as a kid, because as I said in the show, my dad was, you know, my dad's a big Kong guy. The way I am with Godzilla, that's the way my dad is with King Kong. So this, you know, the, the Japanese Kongs were kind of looked down a bit. It wasn't until I got older that I really started appreciating them. But everything you say here is absolutely true. I mean, this it's so much fun, it's so crazy, it's so bananas, it's so much th- what Daikaiju is about, it's just about giant monsters, it doesn't have to be anything more than that, and you get the two greatest giant monsters of all time, King Kong, the 8th wonder of the world, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and they're actually fighting it out, in color. I mean that's, that's just amazing and I'll always go back to that now. It's become one of my all-time favorites because of that and I definitely share your enthusiasm and I also have to commend you at your fantastic ability to work the penguin into any conversation that you're having. And And I'm not even being facetious. I absolutely applaud that because – you know, your your devotion to the character is is amazing. You, you should do a Penguin podcast. There have been enough Penguin stories over the years in the various Batman comics. And if you do that Penguin podcast, have me on as a guest because I like the Penguin too. So I would definitely have like to talk about that. But I'll get into the rest of Jack's feedback. He says, here's my question. Do you see a Don Knotts influence on the character of Taco? Don was one of the major contract players for Universal at the time. Am I just imagining things here? Thanks for the great show. Keep him stomping, Jack Dower. P.S. I love your pro wrestling analogy. Could you see Godzilla coming off the ropes to leg drop on King Kong? (laughs) To answer your second question first, I would more see it the other way around. I mean, Kong's the face, right? So he's got to do the big leg drop like Hulk Hogan, like, you know, the Hulkomaniac Hulk Hogan, like in the 80s, you know, Um, and not not 90s NWO uh, Hogan. So uh, I could see it the other way around. Godzilla, I could see him doing like the, um, you know, like the, the big show will bounce off and do the big shoulder block or, um, what was his name? Uh, uh, the alpha male used to do the Uh, He back in TNA. I could see him doing that. Just, you know, just leveling the hell out of somebody with a big shoulder. And ironically, Kiru does that in one of the millennium Mechagodzilla films. He throws like a jet powered shoulder block on Godzilla, but that's uh, that's a story for another day. Getting back to your earlier question about Don Knotts' influence on Taco, I'm not. I don't know if it's a, maybe a direct influence, but they certainly. He does seem kind of like a Japanese Don Knotts, doesn't he? He's got kind of that same mannerisms. He's always nervous. He's always you know vacillating between being terrified and and supreme confidence. So I, I could definitely see the Don Knotts influence, even if it was um, not direct, but maybe a subconscious sort of thing. Again, uh, I uh, you know it, it's. A good example is when he's, you know, relaxing and it's like, oh, and he puts his hand down and blows up the uh you know, like, like he's gonna blow up the, the the TNT. I mean that's a that's a total Don Knotts thing. So I, I can understand where you're coming from with that. I hadn't made that connection. And um, you know, but yeah, good good call on that, definitely. Jack, thank you very much for, for writing in. Always appreciate your feedback. And uh, interested to think what you, hear what you think about uh, the Godzilla comics or Marvel or Veron. So uh, be sure to write me in again, Jack. Thank you very much. And our next piece of feedback is entitled Great Ultraman Episode. That's just his name. And it comes from uh, Jack Bon. Um, and uh, Jack writes, I'm the mecha fan who wrote in about the Mysterians. And you sent such a long reply that I've been hesitant to impose on your time since then. Quick catch up. Good to hear the theme songs of the Green Slime and The Last Dinosaur again. I haven't felt the need to revisit the movies since the 70s. The world TV premiere of that one, huh? But your summaries brought all the memories back. Mechagodzilla 93 has had a bit of its thunder stolen by King Ghidorah. As you said, that was obviously designed to sell toys, and I want one. But it's still cool in its own right. Jack, let me jump in there and say don't worry about writing emails because... That's kind of how I got a name for myself in the podcast game, was I was the guy that wrote long emails and wrote a lot of emails. Uh, so don't don't feel bad about that. And especially the stuff you get, which is always from a different perspective, like I said, because um, it, this, this was the first correspondence I'd had with a listener from someone who was a mecha guy as opposed to a kaiju guy. So uh, I definitely uh, appreciated that. And the long response you got was because – it kind of stirred a lot of thoughts up in my head, so don't don't ever hesitate to write in. Uh, getting back to your email. Now, to your most recent podcast and the interesting news, not so much the 90s comic, but Shout Factory TV streaming Ultra Q and Ultra 7, I'll have to make some time to explore both sides of the Ultraman series. Interesting point you make about Ultraman helping you balance monsters and mecha in your mind. Like Professor Allen, I'm a bit older than you, which, paradoxically, makes me younger when I first encountered Ultraman. Afternoons on a local Ohio station in the 70s. It was my end to tokusatsu and kaiju, only if we use those terms for the Japanese branch of the art, since it joined the syndication reruns of our own popular 60s sci-fi shows. Together, they all presented the range of options. If the best defense against a monster was your own space giant, it was told on Ultraman. If that defense was an atomic submarine, you had Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Durr, 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 durr. I love Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. If you were lost in space, you might have to face off a Cyclops with only your laser gun and rocket pack. Or, of course, the monster might be a hoax by an actual man in a suit and it could be handled by a bunch of meddling kids. I hadn't thought about it that way, but in the melding of science fiction, mecha, and kaiju, kaiju probably hangs lightest in my balance. Before my brother gave me the box set of Ultraman, the only two episodes I could have summarized to any great detail would have been the terrifying cosmic rays, because what kid wouldn't remember that? And Passport to Infinity, with its sci-fi concept supplanting the monster action. Uh, that it's that, that's a good point because again, I, again, I never saw these in the same context that you're talking about. So it brings an interesting perspective, because when you're a kid, you don't care that something's Japanese, and you don't necessarily register that it's Japanese, that it's any different except maybe that the lips don't quite match up, than the other shows that you're watching in the same block. I never thought of God, you know, Godzilla or Rodan or um, Gator the Three-Headed Monster or Monster Zero as Japanese films until my mom kind of made the old joke. It's like, well, how can those monsters be? It's Japanese guys in the suit. So I think you make a really good point that they all kind of come from the same sort of zeitgeist, that 60s uh you know milieu of the of the culture and the, what science fiction was at that point. I like you mentioning Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, in for all intents and purposes, is kind of like the dry run for Star Trek, except it's got a bit more overtly military th- um, aspect to it than Star Trek does. But even that started out militaristic. And I've often made the comparison between Ultraman and Doctor Who. You know, go listen to the show Shag and I did for that. So I think that's a great perspective, and that's really a good point. That all these, these shows all kind of fed into each other, and they all kind of, um, you know, for the viewer, they all kind of informed us in, in different ways, you know? And, and like you said, it's the same general theme and how you riff on it. What's the best way to deal with it, depending on the story engine of the show that you're watching? So that, I thought that was a really good point. And man, I would have loved to have been able to see that, a uh, an afternoon block of, you know, Ultraman, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, and Scooby-Doo, I mean... Who wouldn't like that? And if whoever they are, I'd like to meet them and educate them because that's just just some great fun right there. Jack continues, as a sidelight, if you're covering the ruffian from outer space soon, you might mention the great schoolyard debate of how, or whether, they got the claws and radar dishes from the Lost in Space space robot to build their monster. Ah, the past. No rewinding, no screen caps for side-by-side comparisons, just trying to fix one image in your mind and waiting for another to show up. Oh, man, I remember those. You know, I remember when it was amazing that you could you could pause something on the VCR and have it be clear enough that you could look at it. That was mind-blowing to me as a young man. But. Back to Jack's email. Shogun Warriors brings up more melding as this issue ties him to the Marvel Universe even beyond the Fantastic Four.
1: Gigantoron is a
0: military issue. So the giant fighting robot is not a unique mystical object of God Warriors, quote, superheroes. I wish I was pleased the Cree were shown to have a spaceship-slash-mecha-destructoid in their arsenal in Silver Surfer number no. 7 from January 1988, even though I'm sure Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers weren't thinking of the Shoguns, but riffing on another transformable toy that had its own Marvel comic. You could fill in the blank there, you real listener. The Charter Federation shows up later, one of those snake-like aliens, well, see for yourself, and he's got a link here, well, he's got he's got a link here to a, a Marvel book where one of them, one of the Charter Federation aliens shows up. It says, there was a handbook of the Marvel Universe that ran pages of profiles on alien races. I'm sure they searched hard for the ones that were not indistinguishable from Earth humans. And I seem to remember the Artists for the series, including some of the more interesting ones in the book. The oval-headed aliens are included as members of the Charter in the unintentional limited series Star Masters, where we see... Again, they should have screened those allowed membership. If you ever get invited on the Quantum Cast, ask to discuss Star Masters one through three. <laughs> Jack, I think you need to go on the Quantum Cast and discuss Star Masters one through three. Send Gene an email. He's a uh, a very personable, approachable fellow. That that is neat though that they did bring back the uh, the aliens and they weren't just a one off. That that was always one of the strengths I think of the Marvel Universe, and and I've talked about this at length on on other things is that. You know, even even right from the beginning, everybody was in kind of the same sandbox and everybody could play with anybody. And it was a concept that was introduced in one book. There was no reason that another writer couldn't pick it up and use it in their book against a different hero which at the time, obviously, DC wasn't doing. Now, what's what's kind of funny about that is that literally earlier today, I was having a conversation where I kind of was working through some thoughts i had been having about how it seems that Marvel has become more siloed, and every book is sort of its own thing, doing its own story without worrying about anybody else, whereas Marvel used to be the poster child for interconnectivity. They've kind of gone the other route where every book is kind of its own little domain, but um, that, that's a... Uh, that is a discussion for another time probably on a on a different show um and uh i did not know that the cree had a spaceship mecha named destructoid and, yes, by 1988, they probably were going more for a Transformers vibe, but, you know, they they still could have been talking about Voltron or something like that, too. So maybe, sort of, kind of the Shoguns. And really, when you look at the connective tissue behind the uh, the super robot toys, it was, in fact, the super robots were the first transform. Riding, specifically, was the first transforming robot toy. And so without riding, you don't get Diclone. And without Diclone, you don't eventually get the Transformers. So there's that. The, the the threads may be subtle, but they always run through there. And Jack continues, More guidance. The important thing is your interest in what you talk about. So whenever you turn to, the battle in outer space is fine. I don't know if you've seen Cyanara Jupiter, but I didn't find it that bad. It reminded me of an Arthur C. Clarke novel, not just in the Jupiter Stellarification Project, but also in its digressing from the main story to explore sidelights of its universe. Or maybe I'm just putting a good face on the tendency of some of these kinds of movies to go off in all directions at once. War in Space is okay, except for the gaping hole where the background of the aliens should be. But the bandwagon-jumping space flick we got immediately post-Star Wars was Message from Space. I remember its pace is a bit slow, but it features some spaceships that are on the list of transformable mecha represented by live-action models. Is there such a list? Rates above the X-Wing and the Return of the Jedi Shuttle though still well below Garuda and Mechagodzilla 2. I promise more from Mothra vs. Godzilla, signed Jack. Um, yeah, the, the, what he's referring to here is that we had been talking back and forth in, in email about whether um, Toho's space operas would be covered because they're not Daikaiju. And I said, well, I, I do want to cover them because they are part of the Toho uh, filmography. They would just probably be guided shows and not regular shows. And uh, I have not seen Sayonara Jupiter, but I want to see that because I did not know that that existed. I found out about Sayonara Jupiter quite by accident because I was looking through a list on TohoKingdom.com. And Toho Kingdom lists all the films that Toho released. Genre films, comedies, period pieces, everything. And in 1984, they had Godzilla 1984, and then Sayonara Jupiter. I think they called it Bye Bye Jupiter as it's uh, how it's supposed to be translated from Japanese. I- or whatever, but I think they have it as Bye Bye Jupiter. It's like, what the heck is that? So I click on it, and I'm reading about. It. I was like, I've never heard of this, and I, 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 and sounded real. Like I said, it sounded like a Japanese version of an Arthur C. Clarke book. So I looked into it, and there, the Discotech, I think has put out a, the DVD of it, which is supposed to be really nice, and the effects are supposed to be phenomenal in uh, Sayonara Jupiter. But the story you say, is supposed to meander about and just kind of go from point to point. It's one of those. You know, big cosmic space movies. That's what they do. So that's definitely on my want list. I want to pick up Sayonara, Jupiter, and, and, uh, you know, definitely cover it along with, you know, Battle in Outer Space and and War in Space and and, and those types of films. So I definitely do want to cover those. And and I I said I I appreciate your enthusiasm for Mecca because it's um, too often the word Mecca, and when I say Mecca, I'm saying M E K A Mecca, like the Japanese word Mecca, not M E C H A, the Americanization of that. Um, we we forget about the ships and the drill tanks and the flying submarines and the uh, yeah you know the turbo jets and all those sorts of things, and we only think about the giant robots. But you know the the, the real Mecca culture, uh, the Mecca otaku, they love stuff like the uh, you know the the A cycle light ray cannon or the mazer tank or um um oh, like the uh, the the guts flyer and the uh the the ultra hawk and uh you know the the jet VTOL from ultraman and uh, you know all these types of ships and stuff that that's what they're that's what they dig into and what's funny is <clears throat> while doing some research for something um unrelated to Earth destruction directive i was looking up starblazer ships or uh you know, um, space battleship Yamato, um, uh, uh, spaceship models, small scale models. And there's a whole subculture of that, of doing customized ships that never appeared in the show or ships that only appeared in the background, stuff like that. That's what, you know, that, that's the otaku level for Mecha. It's there just like it is for Kaiju. It's just, it doesn't get, I just don't think it gets the attention in this country. It seems to be a fairly, uh, solidly Eastern fascination. With the mecha in these science fiction shows, versus the monsters which have a more universal appeal. So uh, yeah, at some point we'll have, we'll you and I'll have to get together. We can do uh, one of these mecha uh, heavy space operas, you know, and just uh, just talk about spaceships and <laughs> and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, flight effects and stuff for ninety minutes or whichever. But uh, uh, like I said, uh, Jack, I really appreciate your email. You're they're always welcome because they're always so well thought out and have so much uh, information in them. And again, like I said with with uh, uh, Jack Dower's email about his enthusiasm for King Kong versus Godzilla, your enthusiasm for Mecha and robots, it's it's uh, it's infectious and it makes me smile. I've got a big grin on my face, I swear to Hashut, right now as I'm reading this email. So thank you very much for writing in, Jack. As I said, if you guys would like to write in, please write in at Directive at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on... Varan or Marvel Godzilla or anything we've covered or something we haven't covered. If you want to talk about your favorite giant monsters, your favorite, uh, you know, spaceships, robots, mecha of any kind, just, just send me an email. We'll talk about it uh, both offline and on the show. And uh, uh, I'd love to hear from you guys. And I appreciate every single listener out there, whether you write in or not. I just want to say that I, I always try to make a point that, you know, I'm doing this because it's a show I want to do and that other people like it is a little – fascinating. And it fills me with pride that you guys enjoy this little silly show that I put together. So thank you very much, everybody. And like I said, I look forward to hearing from you guys if you want to write in. If not, I still appreciate you nonetheless. So now we come to the great moment when we have to ask, have to look forward. Not backward, but forward. Not forward, but upward. And always twirling, twirling, twirling. As we say, what are we going to cover next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we're moving away from Toho for a month. And we are going to look at the next film in the Showa Gamera series, which is Gamera vs. Gurin. This one is Crazy Go Nuts. You Misty fans are probably real familiar with this one. It's a classic from that series. And uh, we'll also be taking a look at the next issue of Marvel Godzilla, which is number three, as uh, things keep turning up the heat on the big G as he stomps his way through the Marvel Universe. So I um, want to thank everybody for listening. Also, have any new news or information as it becomes available for any of the n- numerous Daikaiju projects that are going on in the world right now. And uh, I think we're going to have—I uh, think we're going to have our hands full with news going forward. I think it's just uh, only going to be ramping up here for the foreseeable future, uh, on that sense. So, again, thank you everybody again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And until we meet again, keep them stomping. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at Directive at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com.